As we turn our attention to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with joy-filled reverence and sober humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin prepares our hearts and minds to do that. Let's read it together. Consider carefully how you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 830. Uh, again, the text is Matthew 5, verse 7, found on page 830 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Thank you, Lydia. Well, growing up, one of the things that we did as a Clark family, like most families, is that we like to watch movies together as a family. And I was the th I'm the third of four. And, and I have to attest this is true in our own family, my own family today. But when you're one of the younger kids in a household, uh, your parents over time, you know, just with, I don't know, after a number of kids, with each kid they grow more and more slack and what you're allowed to watch on TV, right? So I mean, at first, your first, second born is usually like, okay, you can't watch that. That's, you, know, you can't see that, or no, 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 you can't watch this show. And by the time you get a third, fourth, fifth, it's like, ah, it's fine. Yeah, they're, they're gonna see it at some point, you know? I mean, might as well. Welcome to the world, kid. <laughs> and, so, and so being the third or fourth kid, I got to see, you know, movies I probably shouldn't quite have seen as early as I did, and my, my mom, my mom has a, my mom is just this wonderful, wonderful woman, and she's a woman of tremendous compassion, uh, tremendous mercy, and uh, just kindness. And she always opened up her home, and has always been very hospitable to just whomever would would come across her path. But you know, and when it comes to the movies, what she loved were the movies. Listen to this: were the movies where the bad guy gets it in the end. She just would love, she loved uh, like James Bond movies, right? Where, the, again, the, 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 the good guy wins. And, and, and you go into the movie, no, you know what's going to happen. It's not like, I don't know, is Bond going to die? Right? Is Jason Bourne, is he going to get killed? Right? No, we, we know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen, but we know it's going to happen. And we, we love it. We love this. There's something about us that loves to see justice done. And so much of that, I remember actually as an adult talking about it with my mom, just saying, hey, what, what was it about those movies that you liked? She said, well, just because in life, so, so rarely is justice ever done. So rarely do people get away with things. And it's just nice to have a story where we can see that people actually get what they deserve. Right? I don't know if you can relate to that, but that's... That's so often the case. We're all around us, we see in the news, see corruption in politics and in businesses and you know, family. I mean, it's just there's so much injustice. And we long, we long to see justice done, to see people get what they deserve. And so when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to Christianity. Christianity can be rather disorienting that way. Because Christianity speaks of a God who is so, listen to this, on the one hand, is incredibly merciful, and yet also very just. 
already this morning on, on purpose, I've shared several times this refrain of how God reveals himself to Moses. I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And then he continues, in the very end, there's this statement, but I do not leave the guilty unpunished. Deep in God's character, fundamental to who he is, is a notion of mercy, a a profound sense of compassion. And, And the beatitude that Lydia read for us this morning, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, strikes at the very heart of the Christian message. And in some ways it's very easy to understand, but in some ways it's very difficult to do. And I want to talk about just a few aspects of it, so it won't take long. In some ways it's a fairly simple idea, but I do want to share some texts and passages that illustrate this idea. But the, the, the fundamental thing that we need to understand about this, this beatitude is that there really is, listen to this, there really is if you will, a tit-for-tat in the kingdom of God. There really is a form of reciprocity, a form of of I scratch your back, you scratch my back. And what I mean by that is this, and it's right there in the title. It can't get any simpler, all right, in this sermon. Listen to this. To know his mercy is to show his mercy. I can give you I can give you a litmus test. So simple, such a, but so important. I can give you a litmus test that will show very palpably how much you know of God's mercy. And it's simply how much you show his mercy. Let's do a timeout and stop. Think about the relationships in your life. Spouse children, parents, siblings, those who know you and those whom you know, are we showing mercy? And to the extent that we, the the way that we answer that reveals the amount of mercy that we realize, that we understand, that we have known. If you want to turn me, so, so the Beatitudes are in Matthew 5. If you want to turn to the right, to Matthew chapter 18, that's a, one of Jesus' most famous parables. It's a parable that, uh, and not, not, not of my own leading as a husband and father, but actually Sarah has, uh, has um, asked or has uh, um, required our children, most of our children, to memorize this parable. And parents, if you ever were to ask your children to memorize scripture, you could do, you could do a lot worse than, than Matthew 18. So Matthew 18, it begins in verse 21. It begins with a, a question that Peter asks Jesus. He says, then we read Matthew's, then Peter came to Jesus. This is on page 844, 844 of your pew Bible, if you want to follow along. Again, it's Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? It's a pretty good number. You might, you know, too quickly pass judgment on Peter and say, that's not enough. 
about seven times. In fact, this was actually a debate in, in that time. Various Jewish uh, uh, religious leaders would talk about the, how, how, just how merciful, just how forgiving do you have to be. And Peter is taking that debate to Jesus. In verse 22, Jesus said, Jesus answered, we read, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And of course, Jesus isn't actually giving a literal number of 77 uh, in the ancient Jewish world, seven was a number of completion or wholeness. So it's, it's a metaphorical meaning of, of all the time, of endlessly. There's this bottomless forgiveness that's to be there. And let, me, let me explain what Jesus means by that. But he continues, he gives this wonderful parable. He says, verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now let me just pause real quick there. The NIV very fairly translates what used to be 10,000 uh, uh, 10, um, uh, um, uh, talents as uh, 10,000 bags of gold. And 10,000 talents is a sum that really is, is, is beyond, um, it's a sum that's beyond any sort of normal, uh, no one in the ancient world, almost no one would have had actually 10,000 talents. And the closest we would have gotten would be someone like, uh, like Julius Caesar when he would, uh, on his various um, um, uh, military uh, adventures, if you will, his various military crusades, he would uh, you know, go throughout areas of Europe and conquer and in that, in that conquest. The spoils that he would uh, accumulate would be, I mean, truly astronomical. And so um, he, he, someone like that might have had that kind of that kind of that almost that much money but never in the world would anyone actually forgive a debt of that of that size and so Jesus here is speaking of really what is an astronomical and incredible and incredulous amount of money and here this king forgives it and then we, we we read in verse 28 but when that servant went out he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell onto his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. Does that sound familiar? But the servant refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay, until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours. Excuse me, I canceled all that, all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed now listen to these words of Jesus, because he's not kidding. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister 
from the heart. They're very strong words. Jesus is not messing around. Now let me explain, maybe I'd make a difference here between forgiveness and mercy. And some of these words are used in different ways. I'm just going to define them in my particular way. People use them differently. I'm not saying this is how they're always used. But how, how I understand forgiveness and mercy is, is, is as follows. Mercy, what, what Jesus is calling us to in this beatitude, mercy, blessed are the merciful, is a general sense of an ability to look at someone's situation and to understand it and have empathy, to walk in their shoes, to, 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 to have a sense of compassion, a sense of mercy toward them. To be able to say, you know what, the, 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 their situation, whatever they have done, is one that is sad. It's, it, it grieves us. And we long for them to flourish. And I'll give a few illustrations of that. that that's mercy. That's compassion. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that we do in response to someone coming to me and asking for that forgiveness. It's when someone comes to me and they confess their sin. They themselves are acknowledging that they have done something wrong. And they say, will you forgive me? That's forgiveness. That's especially what Jesus is talking about here in this parable. He's speaking of the idea of forgiving someone. Okay? So on the one hand, forgiveness is, is something that is in response to a confession. Okay? And we're always, we're always called to forgive. If someone confesses their sin to us, we are absolutely called to forgive. And that doesn't mean there might be complications. It doesn't mean that there's a thousand qualifications that we can make based on the egregiousness of the sin, all, all manner of things. But we indeed are called to forgive. Whereas mercy is different in the sense that mercy is this general attitude of wanting what is best for others. If you could turn real quickly, turn to the right to Matthew, to Luke's Gospel. Uh, I think I've referenced this passage not too long ago, but in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is making his journey toward Jerusalem for the final time, and he's about to enter in. And we read this, this is, again, this is page 903 in your pew Bible. Again, 903. It's in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. So Jesus is on, on his way. He's, he's made the whole journey to some 80-some miles from Nazareth in the north to Jerusalem, and he's on his way toward Jerusalem. And um, he's, uh, he's, he's riding in on, on, a, on, a, on a donkey, and, he, and what happens here is, is that Jerusalem, he comes around the corner and Jerusalem comes into view. The, the city that will murder him. The, the, the people of that city, the leadership of that city will, uh, will crucify him. And what does Jesus do? Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Isn't that incredible? Jesus sees the city that will crucify him. And he doesn't shake a fist. He doesn't denounce it. He weeps over it. See, this is compassion. This is mercy. He weeps over it and he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. And here the word peace means a general flourishing. If only you had known what was best for you. Oh, I long for what's best for you. If only you had known 
Jesus' heart is breaking here. He says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would, would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And he speaks of what will come to pass. See, Jesus, this is, this is so important, this is one of the key steps in understanding and growing compassion, is that Jesus in no way underestimates the vastness of God's wrath. Listen to what he says here. It's so powerful. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus looks forward into history and he's able to see the real world wrath that is coming upon the city. And he doesn't have to be wrathful. He doesn't have to be angry. He doesn't have to be spiteful. He doesn't have to be resentful because he knows what's coming. He doesn't have to be angry because there's one who is perfect anger, perfect justice. See, when we gaze truly into the, into the, the face of God's wrath, we are freed. We are freed from anger. We are freed from bitterness. See, this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, is this beautiful call to freedom. Because I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where bitterness, where resentment, where anger have controlled me, where a rage of, how could they do this to me? And it owns me. It rules my life. And, and Jesus here is pointing us. He's not just saying, hey, look, God's wrath, that's terrible, it's bad, it's unpopular. Who wants a God who's angry? Well, I'll tell you what, to have a God who is just and who will pay back, who will, in fact, when the day comes, will not leave the guilty unpunished, is our path to mercy. It's our path to freedom. What a beautiful thing. So we see in this passage here, we see Jesus weeping because he, he, he longs for what's best. Blessed are the merciful. What does it mean to be merciful? It's longing for what's best for everyone. It's a beautiful thing. It's very, very simple, but very beautiful. Now, I want you to hear, kids, this is, this is important. Part of being merciful, listen to this, part of being merciful is praying for others. We did that earlier, but I want, I want to give you an illustration. Turn, turn left with me. I'm going to go to the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God's people are standing at the doorstep of the promised land. And Moses is speaking to them. Moses is old. He's kind of giving his farewell sermon, if you will. And it's in chapter 9. It's on page 157. We have this beautiful picture where, where Moses is reminding God's people of why they are entering the promised land. And emphatically, he reminds them, he says, you know, you guys have been stiff-necked from the time that you came up out of Egypt. Again and again, you have rebelled. And he says, you're not getting this, this promised land because you're any better than the Canaanites. He says, God is only punishing the Canaanites because for the last five or six hundred years, they have lived pure injustice, pure oppression. And, they are, and their time has come. But don't think that you guys are any better. He says, you're, you're stiff-necked, you're stubborn. And he reminds them of the story of the golden calf. Verse 7 of chapter 9, he says, Remember this, and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord, your God, in the wilderness. 
From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. He talks about how he went up to receive the tablets of, that had the Ten Commandments on it, and how um, very quickly they, 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 they forgot about Moses, they forgot the Lord, they, they created this calf. And then, um, listen to this, look at verse 13, this is on page 158. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. Now let me ask you, if you had been Moses, what would you, how would you have responded to that? I don't know about you, I would, I would have been tempted to go, you know what, I think that's a great idea. I'm so done with these Israelites, I'm done leading them, they're always whining, they're always complaining, and frankly, I would make a better nation. Right? But listen, what, what, what does God say? He says, listen, I love this, verse 14, let me alone so that I may destroy them. And what does Moses do? He doesn't leave God alone. I love this. I love how he falls down. Verse 15, he goes down the mountain. Um, he, he, he addresses the issue with, the, uh, with the God's people. Verse 18, then once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so arousing his anger. Listen, it's amazing. He goes on to speak of, of how, he said, verse 19, I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord for he was angry enough with, with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. It's an amazing thing. And then verse 25 he says, I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said that he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people for your, inherit your inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of your people, their wickedness and their sin. I love that. So Jesus, what, is he, what is Moses doing? He's, he's interceding on behalf of a rebellious people. That's compassion. Do you have people in your life right now who are so lost, who are so enslaved, who are so on a path of destruction, who have hurt you, who have wronged you, and you can say, I am going to commit myself to interceding for that person. That word is so important, intercede. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's Moses. And he doesn't leave God alone. He recognizes that God is angry. He recognizes God's wrath. His wrath is coming. Just like Jesus sees it, he knows God's wrath is coming. And he's freed to show mercy. He's freed to intercede. And I just, I know it's something that as a pastor, um, I, just, I just found this very convicting. Because I, I, I pray for you as a congregation, but I, I read this and I thought, you know, Dave, here's Moses, 40 days, 40 nights without food and water. I don't, I don't understand that. I don't know how that works. Don't ask me to explain it. But he is filled with a longing for God to show mercy to a very, very stiff-necked people. Isn't that beautiful? Blessed are the merciful, 
for they will be shown mercy. Let me just say a few more things here. I'm going to remember we're coming for landing here. If you're asking, okay, I want to be merciful, but I don't know how. Scripture, one of the most powerful things about Scripture is that it gives us all these metaphors for describing how humans are broken, how we have deviated from the design that God gave us. And this, this, there's an, what I would call an impressive array of metaphors. Let me list some of these metaphors. In other words, these are metaphors that describe how humans have gone off track, ways that we have, ways that we have fallen from our created state. You ready for some of these metaphors? First one is this, rebellion. Scripture de- de- describes sin as rebellion. I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna do what you tell me to. You can't make me do it. I'm gonna do whatever I want. That's, that's sin. But another sin is also defilement. You know what defilement is? You come, you become dirty. You ever sin, kids? You ever sin? You do something wrong. You maybe you're mean to someone, or maybe you lie, and inside suddenly, you just feel dirty. You feel yucky. See, sin is defilement. But sin isn't just rebellion and defilement. Sin is also slavery. Now think about that for a second. Slavery. What do I mean by slavery? Well, slavery, you, you, you're, you're being controlled. Like, you can't stop doing something. Have your kids, you know what I'm talking about? You were like, maybe you're eating food and you just keep eating. You, do that. you can't stop, right? You just, because you want it so much. See, sin is desire out of control. Can't stop wanting. You can't stop fearing. You just can't stop. It's slavery. And that metaphor is one of many that actually creates compassion. We look at someone and we go, oh my goodness, they're enslaved. They're a slave. They can't stop. Who wants, who envies a slave? Who envies someone who's addicted? Who envies someone who can't, who literally just can't help themselves? And again, it's not to, Jesus isn't, or the scripture's not, not alleviating responsibility or culpability, but it's recognizing the power of sin in our lives. So sin is rebellion, it's defilement, it's slavery. Sin is alienation. When people sin, what happens to them? They end up alone. It also creates compassion. You see someone, they're sinning. They are all by themselves. They pursue that trajectory long enough and they will be all alone. They will have made, they will, have, they will be in a hell of their own making. Sin is alienation and it's loneliness. But you know what sin is also? Let me give you one more. There's so many. There's blindness, sickness, distortion, crookedness, infidelity, betrayal, fruitlessness. I mean, it goes on and on and on, the metaphors. Let me give you one more for the sake of time. Turn to the right. I know we've got, I wanted to kind of give you a little tour of the Bible this morning. Turn to the right. We're going to go to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 5. We're almost finished here. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. It's on page 884 of your pew Bible, 884, Luke chapter 5, verse 27. So I want to land with this metaphor uh, in your minds, in your hearts. Jesus, has, uh, Jesus is uh, still growing the, his, his disciples and calling them. And we read in verse 27, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Levi is also, there's, there's two names. Levi is also called Matthew. He's the author of Matthew's Gospel. And uh, he finds this guy, Levi, sitting in the tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up 
left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet at, at Jesus, uh, for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now listen to this. Jesus answered them, listen to this metaphor that Jesus is using to describe sin. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. What is Jesus saying? He's saying sin debilitates. It's like a sickness. It's like an illness. It, it weakens you. It debilitates you. It puts you into a condition of radical unhealth. And Jesus is saying, why, why would you not have compassion on that? See, the Pharisees, were, they were taking their metaphor of choice. They're sinners. They're transgressors. They're so immoral. They're so wrong. And they were. Jesus isn't disputing the fact that they were sinners. But he's saying, you know, you know, Pharisees, there's more than one metaphor to describe the following condition. There's also this metaphor of sickness that sin debilitates It puts us into a, into, into a condition where we, we can't anymore act or think or, or live in a way that it brings health and life. And Jesus is saying, would you make fun of a sick person? Would you be mad at a sick person? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, I don't know about you, but I can be in a place sometimes where I'm sitting there criticizing, judging, and here's the thing, I'm right. I'm right. They really did that. They really are wrong. They really are sinners. <laughs> and Jesus is like, yeah, I came to save them. <laughs> He's like, oops, right? This recognition that yes, that is who they are. But listen, Jesus says, they are sick. They are enslaved. They are alienated. How can we not have compassion? Listen, let me close with this. Jesus on the cross, on the cross, and throughout his whole life really, but especially on the cross, the Father did not treat Jesus. He did not give Jesus what he deserved. There was no one who was treated more unfairly than Jesus. You look at your life and think, boy, I have, I have gotten some, I mean, just life has taken some turns. It hasn't been fair. Jesus' life was even more unfair. He did everything right for 30-some years. He would live the perfect life only for his father to turn around and treat him as if he had done everything wrong. Kids, have you ever been mistreated by your parents? Have they ever done something unfair? Like, hey, that's not fair. God knows what that's like. I mean, Jesus knows what that's like. His father treated him exactly the opposite of what he deserved. And you know why he did that? He did it so that our father would never treat us as we deserve. Think about that. God will, the father will never treat you 
as you deserve because he tr- didn't treat Jesus as he deserved. And do you know why Jesus, do you know why God did that? Do you know why Jesus was willing to be treated so unfairly, so undeservedly? So that, again, so that we might, so that God would not treat us undeservedly, but so that we might in turn not treat others fairly or deservedly. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to close with this. Who in your life right now does there need to be a radical reconsideration of how you treat them? Who has wronged you and you have an opportunity to show grace, to show mercy? I didn't say permissiveness. I didn't say leniency. I didn't say you enable them. I said, you know what? I want to show grace. And we may need to get together and say, well, Bruce, there's this person in my life. I want to show grace to them. I want to show mercy to them. But I don't know what that looks like. That's a great question. Because loving and showing mercy, showing grace, those are, those are complicated things. What does it look like to love someone in a difficult place, in a dark place? Grace is not leniency. It's not permissiveness. It's not enabling. But it's seeking, doing what is best for that person. Coming alongside them and extending them the compassion that we ourselves have received. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's amazing to think that, G- that you sent your son to live a life in which he knew that although he did ever do everything right, would love you, would love others perfectly, he would be the answer that the world would treat him as if he were the problem. Oh, Jesus, to think that you would be will- so willing to be treated undeservedly, unfairly, unjustly so that we might have life, that we might have that mercy, that compassion, Oh, Father, I just pray that, that everyone here, this entire church, Lord, I pray that they would wake up in the morning and the first thing they would come to mind would be that you are the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Oh, Father, I pray that we would live lives of compassion, that you would enable us to daily launch love offensives toward those who have wronged us, thinking shrewdly, strategically, slyly about how we can truly just surprise people with mercy, surprise them with compassion, with kindness, with gentleness, with a mercy that overwhelms so that a watching world would simply see in awe, would witness your grace in our lives. Father, we love you. We pray these things in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus. Amen.